I'm here with Sarah Gran, who we connected because I, I'll tell the story, but we were actually like diving into something more topical. So um, it's a really funny reason why we're connected. I forgot uh, this story. And, I completely forgot that this is how I met you. you just oh, yeah. You don't remember where so it is. I forgot I'll, that you my demon. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I have your demon inside of me. So I will, no, I'll tell no, that story no. in a few, but uh, we were talking about, you know, it's blackout Tuesday right now. And I was a couple minutes later. It's late. It's late. We've done jack shit as a music industry today. And uh, I was, you know, encouraging someone that I'm close to like, just, just do it. Just pledge 1%. You don't need to figure out exactly where it's going. You don't need to, you you don't need to figure just just you know I think that the independent types can do that to the debt to black music and um, the big ones like I think I think you know uh, it's got to hit eight figures like today they like they need to pledge ten million plus today or else yeah. the right wing looks at this as a joke and they say oh this is what the liberal you know. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in these very liberal industries all my life and like my politics are very left wing, but I have a lot of, uh, you know, the right is very right. They're correct when they are looking at Hollywood and the music industry and the publishing industry and saying, you guys talk a big anti-racist talk and you are some of the most racist industries in America. Uh, I don't know about the music industry. I have less, you know, familiarity with that, but Hollywood has this horrible racist history and this horrible racist present. Um, and we're supposedly this liberal industry, you know, and we're not not doing the right thing, and we never have done the right thing in history. Um, we, we're just giving the other side ammo every day, let alone are we not actually doing what we should be doing. Exactly. I, I think today is a pretty embarrassing day so far. Uh, mm -hmm. As a member of the music industry, I've just, you know, it started out with, I don't know, I guess maybe good intentions, but like like three days ago, I was excited at this idea. And then when it came around, I was like, oh my God. You're a lot younger and, than me. Yeah, I woke up. You're excited about something that happened. You're like 20 I, years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't think it through. And I didn't think through what was really going to happen unless someone took more action, which wasn't taken. So I woke up today to a bunch of black squares with white friends who don't normally use their feeds for this posting, you know, mostly now corrected hashtag black lives matter and you know it's very awkward like oh cool like thanks white friend letting my <laughs> other people know that their black lives are not worthless like oh great you know? <laughs> Like, waiting people been waiting for you to say that everyone's been waiting yeah yep. I'm just oh good that. now we got that now we got it because you've weighed in now and <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. what blackout tuesday it gave these uh, this opportunity to a lot of um a lot of people who have not it, it was the safest thing a lot of people who, yeah. who were like worried about wading into these waters worried about saying the wrong thing this was like the easiest way to check the box and and get that dopamine lift mm -hmm. of I did something, you know, <laughs> like, no. So, yeah, I, don't know. so I just went on a rant about diversity training and stuff. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, God. Yeah. But um, you have a little exposure to the music industry. I mean, you, you, I've, I, I'm not all the way through because I just got it like two days ago, but like Bohemian Highway, Claire DeWitt, one of your 
detective yeah. novels. Um, and you know, you, you, you're at least thinking along the lines of that world. Yes. My husband is a musician. We have a ton of friends oh, who are musicians. Um, I've been, you know, I've been friends with musicians all my life. I'll tell you one of the sad realities of the world. Every novelist really wishes that they were a musician. Oh, um, we all, all want to write. <laughs> all lawyers actually wish they were novelists. All novelists actually wish they were musicians. Musicians wow. are like the end of the line. They're the only people who don't wish they were doing something else. They're the only people who are like, yeah, being a musician is cool. This is what you should do. Everyone Man. else wants to be someone else's. Some people hearing this will be very encouraged by that. Others, not so much. <laughs> but so you married one. So there you go. You got the compromise. You got to write and experience it. Yeah, that's the life. Yeah. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I'm only a little bit into Claire, to, to this Claire DeWitt. Uh, and, and I'm getting a lot of the detective correlation to the musician and the search and the endlessness of it and the identity the the um correlation between you know the musician finding their soul and their place in the universe and the detective finding the answer but where does that lead us wait did i freeze on that same spiritual journey you're breaking up a bit here oh, it just no. clicked back in it froze yeah. and we're back in uh sorry P can you please yeah the reason why writers always love detective stories so much even those of us who don't write them you other writers like to read them even if they're not into crime fiction um, is there is this this commonality in the quest for something true, the quest for something real, for something genuine, and that involves sort of, you know, in the detective story, it's looking outside for the truth. If you were a musician or a writer, you were looking inside for the truth, and then you were looking to share that. So there is this real, at least in the metaphorical sense, commonality of goals there. It's, it's big. I mean, yeah. I don't know if there's a lot of... I don't know if there's, there's, I don't know if I've ever read anyone really lining up the musician with the, you know, the guy on the road with the guitar to the private yeah. detective. That's the, the other flaneur. thing, that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then as a writer, you get some of that too. Like, I actually haven't toured very much the past few years, but in past I've done bigger tours for books and traveled more for work. And I still, I won't do it this year. Last year, I went to Europe um, for tour. And there's this similarity as being on the road. And I also just love to travel. So I used to go on these long road trips and travel a lot. And this sense of being on the road, of always moving, of waking up in a different hotel room every day. There's something so unique about that and so beautiful about that. And you can't do it anywhere. But in America, being such a big place, it is a really specific and unique experience and you know if you drive around the country and stopping in cleveland and then columbus and then wherever you're going next um and that rhythm of the road that was a big part of the story and a big part of the commonalities so this came from you experiencing that for the first time with with what, what that would have been around what your first novel is 2009 or was no my first novel was 2001 2001 okay 
Yeah, and, and then, that I didn't do any travel. But then that was about 2004 is when I started traveling a lot because that's it. when I started making a little bit of money from writing from Come Closer. I started making a little bit of money with that book, um, not through book sales, but through film options so that I no longer had to have a day job. Um, and I grew up in New York City. I'm from Brooklyn. So when you grow up in New York, it's really hard to travel because yeah, it's so hard anywhere. to get in and out of the fucking city, right? Yeah. Like getting out yeah. of New York is like three hours. You don't just get in your car and go drive somewhere. LA is kind of the same way, but there's little sort of sneakier ways in and out of LA. It's a little bit easier here, I think. Yeah. Um, so when I started making a little bit of money in 2004, I wanted to get the hell out of there. And I did. And me and Bobby, my husband, we drove down to Florida, but we spent like three weeks just driving around. Then we stayed in Florida for like six months. And we went to New Orleans for a couple of years. We ended up moving all over the country. But that's when I got into this thing of traveling. And I kept that kind of way of life traveling all the time up until pretty recently. Just the past few years, so I really kind of settled down in LA. There's like a romance to it that we need to mm -hmm. consume. We need to gather but then I guess at some point you can, you can sit down and you can let all these elements settle into where they're going to settle and, and make something of it. You don't want to do it forever. That's probably a good description of the creative process on any level, like not just literally traveling, but you're going out psychically, exploring things, right. coming into contact with new ideas and expanding who you are and your sense of what's out there. And then you have to come back and get it on paper and settle down. And some people are better at one or the other. And if you do both, then you kind of got something you can go with, you can do. <laughs> you Have gotta, you gotta found get both that you can manifest that or does it just kind of happen when it happens for you? Um, you know, I also write for TV and that is like, so it's funny because as a novelist, you live this life that's very, um, you know, if you want it to be, it's whatever you want it to be. If you can make a living, you know, a lot of us have day jobs and I do, but I have this weird day job that I work in Hollywood, but there's all this freedom. But when you're writing for, and same with features, which is movies, you can, no one cares when you finish a movie script. <laughs> no one really makes movies anymore. It's all just, you know, <laughs> sort of like, but when you write for TV, there's a TV show to come out every week. Yeah. So you better fucking get down to work. You cannot be late with anything ever. And you're also usually a producer. So you're expected all of a sudden to have the polar opposite skill set. And luckily I did have that skill set, which I didn't know I had until I needed money enough to try doing it. And then I was like, hey, I can actually do this. But then you have to do it. You can't have that beautiful, luxurious going out in the world and coming back. You have to say, I got to finish this scene by midnight because they need to shoot it tomorrow. And this um, four, these four walls have to have all the inspiration that I could ever need or it's not getting done. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, hopefully you have a whole lifetime of right. things you've been interested in and things you've had the opportunity. I'm doing like a free little promo for my tea here, apparently. I'll turn it around. <laughs> <laughs> um, this whole universe of, of, you know, your whole life will come into play in that moment, but you can't plan it. I mean, you can't, you can't wait until you feel like it. It has to be plans. It has to be right now. Um, what was the first... <laughs> synthesis of that where like where, where you came to the point where you realized oh I have a complete idea that I need to put in oh this is a book oh people are going to want to read this oh this is going to be worth time you know I had the urge to write before I had that which if yeah, I look back and I don't understand it and I don't understand it when I see it now in younger people I mean I guess everyone has that experience to some degree when you look at a younger version of yourself and you see like a stranger it's odd because now 
Well, we can go back to music, like how a lot of people want to play music. And for me, I just can't do it. Like if I try to play guitar, like my hands don't move that way. <laughs> you know, that's just not happening. I can't. Yeah. yeah, I just cannot do it. And I had that same urge to write and urge to create books long before I could actually do it. And somehow I knew, you know, that was where my happiness would be in life. And that would be where the life that I wanted, this life of travel and somewhat more adventurous than I had been raised to expect and a somewhat kind of bigger, more fun life. Somehow I knew that would come from writing books and that I had to get there. And the first book wasn't very good. And then the second book, uh, I didn't finish. What? I know, I'm getting the story wrong. First book, I didn't finish. Second book, I did finish, but it wasn't very good. No one published it. And I knew it wasn't that great. I was like, oh, this isn't quite good. And then the third book was the book that was published in 2001. And then after that, uh, you know, things have gone somewhat steadily uphill ever since then in terms of sales and, and getting better at what I want to do and being able to accomplish what I set out to accomplish, you know. Well, what, what made the difference in 2001? Was it just doing it enough times and getting it right? or, or did Yeah, it, I think it's yeah. just you have to be ready to fail. And that's the one thing I always, I write about a lot and I talk to young people about a lot. And whenever I have the opportunity to speak in public, like now, it doesn't seem like public over here at my my office, but I guess this is speaking in public too. You know, I like to talk about the process of failure is such a big part of any creative process, any artistic process, and you have to be prepared to fuck up. You have to be prepared to not know what you're doing. You cannot get your ego wrapped up in your results. That ego drive has to come from I showed up and I worked for four hours or eight hours or whatever your sweet spot is. You know, that has to be the source of esteem and the source of feeling good about it. Uh, it cannot be I finished something great because then you'll you'll be tempted to pass off work that's great that's not good enough and not done. But also a lot of your work just isn't going to be good, especially when you start off. So you have to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. And I was trying in those first few books to do something really big, which I can do now. And like I think you see in the Claire DeWitt book, it's big. It's got a big scope. Yeah, it's got a lot of different stories, a lot of different strains, all of these different characters and world. I couldn't do that when I was 20 something, you know? So I had this big idea that didn't work. And I took this one story out. It's a story of a mother and daughter in that book. And I said, this I can write. This is like a world that I know. I know these people and it's small, it's contained. There's like all these sort of machinations in a plot that have to, you have to be able to do it. And you can only do it if you have some experience to make a real complicated plot work. I couldn't do that. And I kept trying and trying because I liked those books and I kept failing. And I said, this is a simple plot. The mother's dying. The daughter doesn't want to accept it. That's what my first book is about. There are people who've spent too much time sort of around books and around intellectual culture, and they don't have fulfilling emotional lives. I can write this story and finish it. And I could. Um, and, you know, that was, I, it was a combination works. of me changing and also learning what I could actually do. Okay. I like seeing the pathways, you know, of how people start to learn how to m meld ideas and craft and figure out that I, I, I like it, it's weird reference, but M night Shyamalan talked on Norm McDonald's Netflix show last year, or maybe it was a couple of years ago, probably. 
I don't know what time it is. I don't know what year it is anymore. Like I was saying something. No, like, no one knows it anymore. It's just a yeah. big blur. It's just 2020, the blur of 2020. It's so weird. Like I was saying, this definitely wasn't last year. This was like, it has to be two years ago at this point. Cause now it's already, now we're deep into 2020. Now we're like, it's June. Oh God. Wait, it's Ugh. June right Ugh. now. That's halfway through the year. I know. I it's know. the I sixth like month. I know. That's crazy. We're actually halfway through the year. Anyway, uh, well, <laughs> uh, but M. Knight yeah. was talking about, I loved hearing this. He was just talking about, uh, so he had this period where, you know, he had just like, he was on fire. He wrote all these amazing scripts yeah. and made all these amazing movies. And then he did all this, you know, junk. And Norm asked him about that. And, and M. Knight had a really, really profound answer. It was sort of a two-part answer. One was that in your life at some point, you, you sort of meet this art and craft and ideas and expression, meet your ability to express. And it just, it just clicks and you're able to kind of bottle that into work for forever or for five minutes, you know? And you kind of you can't predict when that happens or what that will be, but then it, you know that it happened when it happens. And for him, he actually says that he got back to it because he lost it. He got back to it when his kids got older yeah. because he could, he was free for making things that fit. He didn't want to make things that he was making before when he had young children. And because they were scary and they were dark and they were right. not things that he yeah. wanted them to, he didn't want to go there. And then he got back and he, he got better again when he, when they got older, like went to college and he no longer was tied to that. Um, and I don't think he went back to like his previous peak, but he got a lot better over the last few years than he was for the last yeah. 20. I, I think about I also that. Think people yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No. Um, all of my favorite artists and filmmakers and writers, you know, are people who have a lot of failures in their back pocket yeah. because the part you can go in a couple different directions, right? If you have a little bit of success, you can go in the direction. I'm just going to phrase it in a very blunt way. You can go in the mm -hmm. direction of death, or you can go in the direction of life. The direction of death is I got popular for doing this thing. So even though I am growing and changing as a person, ideally, right? Ideally, that's the goal. I'm going to keep doing the same work. You will not grow and change as a person if you're just doing that same work. You're going to stay exactly where you were and your work is going to stay exactly where you were 25, 30, whenever you had that popular thing. And you do it over and over again. And it's like a living death, right? Mm -hmm. It is a death in life. You become a walking corpse. And I know a lot of those walking corpses because I know a lot of very, very successful writers and directors and musicians and whatnot, you know, and we're, I'm 48. So I know people who are middle-aged and they are still doing the same thing for 20 years and they have no connection to that anymore. Or you can choose the path of living a real life, which is you're always doing something new. You're always doing something different. And that will involve mistakes and failures. And if you're an artist, those mistakes and failures are going to be very, very public. Right. And you know, it's tempting to say now we live in a time where that's not acceptable. Maybe there was never a time when that was acceptable. But now you see it a lot more clearly with social media because you see people talk about you on Twitter and whatnot. And you see a writer or an artist go in some different direction and their fans are angry and upset and they don't like it. 
but you know, you, you want to go on a path. You want to be going somewhere outside. You want to be going somewhere different. Um, you want to always have that spark of, of real connection with your work. And that will involve making mistakes and failing and trying things you can't finish. It's in a way it's impossible. It's, it's a scary time to fail. And in a way it's also can be seen as a more open time to fail because you can just someone yesterday was using the metaphor of like, who's going to make a better bowl, the guy who spends all his time making one bowl or the guy who makes 50 bowls. And, you know, it's a time that it's, we're kind of incentivized to make 50 bowls because, you know, the amplification around the failure will be whatever it is. It will be as big as, you know, it, it will be big no matter what, but we can also surround it with, more that we you know we can make up for it very quickly uh and then we just yeah. fall into the trap of uh, the danger of noise you know we don't want to be creating noise we want to be yeah expressing properly we want to be making things that bridge understanding rather than just yes yeah you don't want to be attention. making that. you want to make something that's meaningful right. yeah. or i do at least yeah <laughs> yeah i mean and that, that that's the challenge though because you are you like literally you are not incentivized to work that way if you are in this tiny, tiny, tiny group of artists, of creatives who are lucky enough to have, you know, to make exactly what they want and have it be commercially successful every time, that's amazing. There's a few of those people, but most yeah. have to buffer their, you know, like, like you could have one every few years that just really does well and sells to a big Hollywood producer and like, you're good. Mm -hmm. Like, but most, but then like that, that check is going to, like that's going to be spent over a couple of years and, you, and you're going to have, you could, you have to hit that every single time or you got to do other stuff. And yeah. that's, what's really tricky. I was, um, I was talking with another writer this week who I really love named Natasha Stagg, who writes about New York city and oh, cool. uh, she's with semi text and Chris Krauss is like yeah. her editor. Yeah. And, um, she does a lot. She talks about it. She talks about herself and her writing process all the time. So she writes things that are just like about the thing, but she'll also just like write about being her and the life. And, yeah. oh, I have this job doing copy editing for this, you know, marketing agency. And she'll write a whole piece about it and it'll be in a book. And like, and it's super open about how like she's paying her rent and she is doing things That's to get what? in with an editor that she wants to get hired for something else. But in order to do that, oh, I have to read these... that. Yeah. I'm I happily send it to you. Yeah. She's awesome. Um, also like from a New York perspective, she's, she's from uh, Michigan, but moved to New York early, you know, when she was like 17 and um, has written about it since. And she's cool. so smart. Um, what, what, what part of you, you're from Brooklyn? What, what, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from Park Slope. I was born in Park Slope. And um, then I lived in Williamsburg in the 90s. That's where I met my husband. You lived in Williamsburg in the 90s. He moved there in like the early 80s. And I moved there in the early 90s. Yes. And that's where we met. Wow. In a lot. Like, I'm, I'm from, so I'm, I'm a Manhattan kid. I'm first generation mm -hmm. Manhattan, fourth generation uh, Bensonhurst, Bay Ridge. Mom's oh, okay. side was, uh, oh, cool. Yeah. So my family's from all the way out there. And nice. then my mom's side is from like all this, all the rest of the areas, North, mm -hmm. uh, East, like Queens, Bronx, yeah. like fucking Atlantic city. Like, but <laughs> four generations on both sides, but my dad's side is all Brooklyn. Um, but I talk about this all the time that I literally know nobody 
who lived in Williamsburg, like back in the day, other than Jews, like other than yeah. serious Jews. Yeah. But, yeah. and, and we were just a different, we're, we're serious Jews, but we're in a different part of New York. We're, you know, yeah. South. That's a unique culture. The like ultra Orthodox yeah. culture is very unique. Yeah. Yeah. So no- I did that when I was a kid, we, 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 I was bar mitzvahed, like ultra Orthodox. And that, I don't know. We have different, you know, everyone's got different definitions, but I was, I I was bar mitzvahed yeah, yeah, yeah. Orthodox. Like I did the whole yeah. thing and all that, but like I wasn't like pious. Yeah, but East Williamsburg, oh, okay. like, I don't, that's a whole nother culture that I have no pre, like North Six, you know, pre, like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm 35. So, like, I went to high school, I graduated in 2003. So, like, mm-hmm. those years before, you know, around the millennium are my first exposure to Williamsburg, you know, yeah. 2001. Like, I, did, I don't know what it was like in the 90s. Like, I want to talk about that now. Wow. Tell yeah, me about yeah. Williamsburg in the 90s. It was, you know, there was a lot of street prostitution still. There were still like a lot of prostitutes and a lot of pimps. And it was, you know, there was a chop shop across the street where cars would come and go in the middle of the night. We lived across a chop the shop means people steal cars, bring yeah. them to a garage and chop them up, take the parts and sell the parts to other people. And the exactly. car is disassembled. Yeah, yeah. And there was all this weird stuff with animals. That's like where the dog thing and come closer comes from. Oh, man. So I'll go back a little more. My father was an architect and he had a loft in Dumbo in the 70s when most of those buildings were actually empty still. So most of those buildings were abandoned and a lot of them were abandoned with the spices still in them because they had been spice factories and coffee. Not factories, but like warehouses because there mm-hmm. was a functional port at some point. I don't know when. I don't know the whole history of it. Yeah. So like Vinegar Hill Dumbo was mostly just empty. Like there were literal packs of dogs because there was just not that many people. So my father was an architect and he had this sort of prescient view of the architecture and the buildings and what it would become, which is why he bought a brownstone in Park Slope in 1971. And then he had this loft in um, Dumbo in the 70s. That when he was mugged a bunch of times, then we were robbed in Park Slope all the time. These were terrible, terrible times. And now it's so easy to glamorize them. Yeah, but they were also just really awful. And and speaking of like Black Lives Matter and all of this, you know, it's happening right now. So historic. A lot of people, you know, when they glamorize those times, they forget about the lives that were lost, most of them black lives, most of them black men, to crime, to violence, to police violence, to, you know, drug wars, because people had no other way to make a living, and to the trauma, the trauma of growing up in this incredibly violent environment. Gay black men, particularly in a terrible, terrible position, yeah. AIDS in the early 80s, yeah, and that's why... You know, a lot of people don't understand, as awful as Trump is, a lot of people see him as unique because they don't remember even 25 years ago what the world was like, that it wasn't that different. Obviously, coronavirus is up to those, those death numbers to a whole new level, but the AIDS crisis and how many people died and how many people just did not give a fuck and all of these people dying from crime in the cities and people just, other people just didn't care. Um, you just hoped you didn't get shot yourself. Right. So it's really easy to glamorize like the 70s and the 80s because the music was so good and the fashion was so good. And I was there and I appreciate all that stuff and I miss all that too. But you also have to acknowledge people's lives were ruined. All this opportunity was lost. Um, you know, there were real, there was a real price paid. There was a real price paid and it wasn't by people like me. Although to some small degree, you know, I had bad experiences and muggings and sexual assaults and all of those things. But the real price was paid by obviously the people whose lives were lost. And I just think it's really important to talk about that when you talk about the old days of New York. Um, yeah. You know, and if you go back another hundred years, it was not a 
Black Lives Matter was Jewish lives and Irish lives being killed mm -hmm. in crime. And those lives were also really important back to the 1920s. You know, I'm sure you know it was Jews running most of the organized crime. And again, it was whole generations who lost all of this, lost their lives and lost their standing and had to kind of live as criminals that enabled so many of us Jews to do well. I watched Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire with my grandma and she tells me everything. What's that? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I watched yeah. Boardwalk Empire. She was a dancer at the Latin Quarter. And oh my God. For, for Lou Walters. I would like to meet your grandma. That's oh, so she's, cool. She is the best. She's in Florida right now, not leaving oh. the house in Boca. Um, oh my God. She's the best. But uh, mm -hmm. if you're both in New York at the same time, when it's like, like she comes to New York for the winter. Oh, well, I mean, sorry, sorry, for the summer. I'll go to Boca than New York. Oh, well, you're, you're welcome Florida. to join us in Boca. She's the best. She's I'm the coolest. In. She, she, uh, she was a can can dancer with her twin, oh, wow. Twinny and Winnie. And uh, she worked for Lou Walters at, at Latin oh Quarter. Gosh. And I watch, um, I watch Boardwalk Empire with her and she tells me everything. She's like, that's this guy, you know, Enoch Thompson and everything. Like, uh, she tells me everything. She, she knew all, she dated people. Like she knows, oh, that's fantastic. she's like, that guy wasn't, uh, she's like, that guy was actually a baseball player. And he did uh -huh. this. and she's like, that guy wasn't so bad because he drank too much. And he was not actually never got to the point of violence because he was just an alcoholic. And like, she tells me great stories. It's awesome. But yeah, oh, but she was like, happen. she knew all those people. And it's crazy because she was Atlantic City. And like, it's crazy. And I just shot a film in Atlantic City uh, that I literally just submit like two hours ago to Venice. So hopefully... But yeah, oh, but like Atlantic City. Thanks. Uh, well, is it a documentary about about? No, no, no. It, no? Okay. It's it's narrative, but it's there for a reason. Um, because of all this, because of all this stuff that that we talk about right now. Um, because I go there and I I'm obsessed with places that carry the stench of decay like that. Oh, and, yeah. Um, I just feel you know I go to. I spend a lot of time in New Orleans and New Orleans, I wouldn't oh, yeah, call it decay, but I would call it, so there's something, you know, there's just this. Yeah. It's a beautiful decay. It's a decay yes. in a good way. The way the buildings and the nature all kind of flow together into one thing, you know. And there's suffering and there's art made of suffering and there's food made of suffering and we taste it and we hear it and we, we feel it all around. And I go to Venice, Italy. I go to... Cuba, you know, these are places that are just so evocative of humanity. And yeah, so I made the film in um, at a little shitty motel right mm. out at, at, in Absecon, right outside of Atlantic City. Like not, when I say right outside of Atlantic City, I don't mean like nearby, like, yeah. on the, I mean, like, you know, you get out, you, you get off the there's a bridge. And it's this long strip that is like all the casinos and then right across that bridge is destitute is desecration is swamp yes and i've seen that yes like you can't yes. walk because the the there's there's um there's billboards everywhere and you um they have these wooden planks to walk on built to the billboards to for the the workers to replace them because it's all swampland oh. it's all unkept swampland it's like it's so and it wasn't like this before it, this is not like natural it's fucked and it's um ah. so yeah so we shot right next to this uh, there's this broken down or, you know, not in use drive-in movie theater. And in the foreground of it is this motel. And, and we shot in the motel. And I could have shot in a motel anywhere, you know. Yeah. But uh, I wanted it to be there because of the, you could you could smell it. You could feel it. Yeah. You could see it. Yeah. You could sense it all. And I, 
acknowledge, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm born in 1984. And I think about this period of, you know, 1980, 1981, 1986, New York City, where mm-hmm. it was a period of, I, I guess this is, yeah, this is what I want to ask you. Like, I think about this period of, man, like, like New York had what we're talking about, that, yes, that stench at that time. And then all this art was created through mm-hmm. that time. And did it, did it lift us out of it? Well, what, what happened? Because it, it didn't, it didn't stay that way. Yeah. Well, what happened? And it wasn't Disney first, till 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, what happened? So no art, you know, I wish I believed in this great story of art lifting society out of things, but it never seems to actually work that way. I mm. mean, what happened was people from the suburbs moved in and they wanted to remake it in their own image. And so, um, they wanted to live in the city, but they didn't want to live with people from the city and landlords were all for it. And, you know, people are people. A lot of landlords are just like people trying to make a living. Yeah. On an individual scale, you give them these artists who never pay the rent and are trying to give you a painting in exchange for rent or this nice couple that has their shit together. And like, what are you going to do on an individual level? That was a literal choice that a lot of people made, you know? And, um, and it became if only they took the paintings, they'd be rich. <laughs> I know, right? They could have taken the paintings, yeah. Um, but a lot of those artists didn't make it. I think of all the artists True. who lived in my building, none of them became famous right. and they did work that was good and maybe it'll be discovered in a hundred years. But, you know, not everyone is lucky to get on that financial success, to get in on the financial success. Um, you know, the city changed in this really fucked up way and that they became, and speaking of, again, back to like the sort of issue of today of police brutality, you know, the police got the mandate to enforce the, they, they made New York City into a city for suburbanites, for white suburbanites to come in and feel comfortable. And it was no longer a city for other people. And a lot of the sort of normal things of hanging out on the street became and playing music and kids playing in the street that wasn't acceptable stuff anymore. All of that. I have shit. a stoop. I live on 15th street and oh, yeah. uh, there's a bunch of schools nearby. I, I, have, I have a townhouse and my neighbors call the cops on, uh, on the kids who hang out and smoke weed on my stoop. And I always, Uh I always let them, I always just, you know, I tell them like, I give them like warnings and stuff and like guidance, but whatever, like, like use my stoop as a fucking like safe haven. Like I actually, I like it. I think it's awesome. Young energy in my neighborhood. Like they're all respectful. If I walk out, they, they're always like, Oh, excuse me. Were we too loud? And I'm like, no, like you're fucking 15 years old. Like, you should be bashing in my windows. Like, I don't give a shit. You know? <laughs> like, like, thank yeah. you for not violating my space. Like, be honest. You want to be in a city. You, yeah, I, I live in New York City for a reason. I'm not like, I tell people that I'm, I'm 35 and my brother's 22. He was, we was same parents, same. He, he grew up in my room. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's still your room. You're yeah, like oh, in yeah. my room. No, it's my room. It's my, room. The, <laughs> well, my pictures are still there. Like, all my shit is still there. Uh, he just, supplanted but um uh he if someone asks him what time it is on the street he looks at his phone and tells them what time it is and keeps walking if someone asks me what time it is on the street i run because that is a gang initiation in my eyes (laughs) that's what i grew up with what i was taught and i'm that's the difference of 10 years you know 13 years like we were we had assemblies in school about which is a whole this is now a whole another part of racism where they told yeah. us that all black kids are you know 
parts of either the Crips or the Bloods, and we don't want to get in the middle of this gang feud, uh-huh. this warfare that's going on that we're that we're getting. Crips and yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, like, because all my friends were getting their wrists slashed because that happened like more than zero times. Um, mm-hmm. But we did have the fear of you know getting mugged, of not walking on the right For street sure. at the wrong time of day or night, and um, I got my ass kicked. A, you know, a bunch of times, not a bunch Me of times, but, yeah. uh, you know, more than, m- more than I would have liked by random, you know, occurrences. I got my ass kicked by cops. Um, I also had wonderful experiences with cops. So it's not, I'm not like all oh, fuck the police, but yeah, but just New York city, like walking around New York city was even in, I'm talking, you know, 1998 or whatever, like very different yeah. from, 9-11 was the, sh- the big turning point like True. to me 9-11 is like a door that closed on the old new york you know right permanently. when were you and done was i was i was like always done i never really like by the time i was a senior in high school i was like i'm done yeah. i'm ready to move on and see what the rest of the world is like you know there's yeah. so much that's great about new york city but it's that the provincialism that like um, oh, there's a sense of self-aggrandizement of, of we're different than everywhere else in the world. The rest of the world is a bunch of assholes and we're so great because we live in New York City. You know, believe whatever you want to believe. That's not for me. That's you how know, I was I'm raised. Like I said, I'm someone who likes to travel and someone who likes to go out and meet different people and talk to different people. Yeah. Um, you know, and there is a lot that's great about New York, but that was the longest. I lost my parents recently, so I haven't been back. So I used to go see them all the time. So I haven't been back in two years, almost three years, and this is the longest I've gone without being there, and I still don't miss it. I keep waiting that I will miss it and want to go back, and now after three years, I still Respect, don't. Respect, really yeah. I'm, uh, I'm both. I'm of two minds on it, for sure. I, I'm a New Yorker. I love it. It's the best place in the world. It's not just the best place in the world. It's mine, and I am its, you know? and. Uh, I don't think that everyone needs to be that way, but I'm, I'm one of the, I see myself as like a, like a child of New York city. And I don't think all my yeah. friends are. I think that my dad was, and I am. And my uncle like, wasn't like <laughs> we, my brother. I don't think he is, but I am. And I think yeah. that uh, we're at a low point right now. We're at a really, really bad time. I, I left for a few years, 2014 to 2017. I think I went to LA and LA was not for me. I've been yeah. going to LA my whole life, but I'm just not an LA person. And I am, uh, I'm a New Yorker, but yeah. I can't live in New York right now. I have no interest. I, I'm giving up, I'm getting rid of my place. I'm literally like telling people to go get the furniture and stuff. I'm getting my ex-girlfriend to clean it out and sell shit because I don't want to go back this year. Um, I want to stay in South America and Europe. I don't want to be in the United States this year. It's yeah. A, it's not the New York that, it's you know, weird not be here. Yeah. yeah, it's a weird time. Uh, I think about, uh, New York. So I, I associate so deeply with, you know, the Flanier idea and, and your quotations in, in the Claire DeWitt novel with, um, what Jacques, uh, what's it, with the Frenchman's Colette. yes. Yeah. Uh, where you're quoting theory on the detective. And I've been thinking about this my whole life, you know, this searching. Um, I'm, I got really into Twin Peaks as a kid. And, oh, yeah, me too. You know, talk, talking about Dale Cooper. Have you ever read Martha Nockamson? No. 
so she wrote a couple books on David Lynch and there's a like one chapter that is on Dale Cooper on 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 the the FBI agent and it talks oh, yeah, about you would love this chapter it's an essay basically um about what search he's really on and yeah it's just it's very much akin to what you're talking about and you know i've been pairing those ideas that you are are surrounding claire dewitt with on my walks in new york for my whole life you know just walking through new york late at night and searching i've seen this as sort of a detective's journey in a weird way Life is sort of a detective's journey in a weird way. I mean, that's kind of what life is if you're, you know, uh, uh, someone who kind of has some curiosity about you. That's what it is. There's this journey of what is true and what is real. That's the whole thing, I think, for a lot of people. How did you go about, I want to create a private detective character? I've always really, really loved detective characters. I've always loved, I love Twin Peaks. You know, I was in college when that came out and just being so blown away by it and so taken by it. Um, And I love the more traditional detectives too, you know, like Columbo and Poirot and Miss Marple. And I love all of that stuff. Um, And I really like the idea of someone who is sort of like a traditional detective, but in like an urban environment and who's not in a small town, you know? So it's like all these sort of different influences. Um, And that's what you can do as an artist. You can just, you know, like we were talking about the things that you've seen in your world that have influenced you personally that no one else could kind of put together like you could, you know, that I had this sort of unique history growing up in New York in that era and always watching these detective shows often like while I was there, you know, when I was a kid and it all sort of mixes together. (laughs) I love the way that you create that world in the, in the writing by casting these swaths as if you're, as if we're in her mind and she's skipping over these giant life events. Like I'm going to, you know, Oh, that magnifying glass was really useful for me until I had to sell it to get across the border. Like, (laughs) and, and that's it. It doesn't, I mean, I don't know. I haven't finished the book yet, but I don't know if it goes, I doubt it goes back to that. I kind of don't want it to go back to that. You never get back to that. You never find out the whole story with that. The case of the omens of no tomorrow. Like, what the fuck is that? But like, no, it's a fucking anecdote. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I like that because it casts this world. That actually came from something really specific. Yeah. Okay. So I really like this detective series from the 1930s by Rex Stout, the Nero Wolf um, series. And my father was really into it and he collected the books and then I got into it. And they're just these fun mysteries. Um, They're all in New York City. So you might really like that part of it because they get really into the geography of New York. You know, there's one guy who does not leave his townhouse on 34th Street because he's this kind of a total asshole news detective. And then the other guy who works for him is this like um, very streetwise, street smart guy who's out in New York all day, every day talking to people. So I've been reading that series all my life, just like out of order. I would grab a book if I was bored and had nothing to do and read one there really quick. And I always thought, so there's this whole universe in the book of like people. It's like very populated. They have all these friends and enemies and people who they know, the detectives, and they know someone from this case. And I always thought, well, if I read the first few books of the series, I would know what this world is. <laughs> and I read the first book in the series and they don't explain anything. It's brilliant. <laughs> they just jump into it. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, we, this guy is our enemy. And that's it. You never find out why. The other cop or the DA or whatever, who's like their big enemy. You think you're going to get this big explanation of why, me having read the books in reverse order, there's no explanation. It never occurred to me as a writer that you could do that before. I was like, 
oh, fuck backstory. You can just jump right in and create the evocative world you want to be a part that's of. That's just information. Also, it's just information. And there's this also, there's this thing in detective fiction of the detective having this sort of connection to these nether worlds, these demimons, all of the various strata of society. Like when I wrote the first book in the series, I got very into this idea of the detective as like a shaman in the very traditional sense of like the shaman is someone who would take this, the tree of life and go up to the top and then down the roots to the bottom, right? That you can go to any level of society, that you are someone who is outside of the ordinary hierarchies of okay. bourgeois life. You are someone who can connect, but also fail to truly be a part of any different segment of society from the economic top to the economic bottom to the best people to the worst people, however you might define it. So there's this tradition in detective series of the detective being that person who will both, who can talk to anyone but never really fits in anywhere, but has a little finger in every pie in their location. So that was something else I really thought was exciting and really wanted to evoke. I like that. I like that world creator. You know, the MacGuffin is more powerful than we give it credit for. It's not just the plot device, but it's a formal... Oh, yeah device it's not a, not even device it's a formal framework by which to think about the whole thing of just what matters here what are we really trying to make the audience understand or feel and sometimes you don't need to give the whole history of that feud or whatever it was yeah yeah and it's i loved reading it that way right? exactly yeah like yeah. i loved skipping like oh this is 10 years now you know but like we got all the mm -hmm. important information from the 10 years and now we're going to learn more the, the character development is going to just happen when things happen and that's better like fuck including or just for character development i hate that i in school and i was just like i don't like this sounds stupid like why are we making you know when i watch films from really like the 70s mm -hmm. really the 70s mostly but like 80s and 90s it still did it um where there's, you know, the first 15 minutes or character development scenes or establishing scenes. And it's like, why do we do that? Just go to scene seven, just get to minute 17 when the character makes a choice and just, just make that the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I love reading these kinds of books because, um, like, like, cause of what I said, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with these things. I've, I've taken it into, I, I don't know if you've ever, I, I want to ask you like, if you've ever had anything like in your real life, like obsessive, because I have, I've gone, I've done weird ass fucking private detective stuff. Like I've done weird shit. I've known it's weird at the moment and gone yeah. and tracked somebody down. What were you trying to find out? I was super conscious of, so there's two main ones. One, I was having a conversation with some friends from, you know, from growing up and we were catching up about blah, blah, blah. This is five years ago. And it's like, how's this person? How's that person? Oh, what are they doing? Who got married? Whatever. And then one, none of us knew. And we knew everyone. Well, like within, right there. Yeah. Exactly. Like within everything, like we're all at our laptops and like either one of the three of us knows where the person is or like we could Google it or Facebook it yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And one person, none of us knew. And I go on my computer, not on Instagram, not on Facebook, not on Google, nothing. And I'm like, and it happens to be, of course, the beautiful blonde Russian girl who kind of disappeared in the middle of high school and came, who came from nowhere in middle school and disappeared in the middle of high school, of course. And she was beautiful and blonde. Like, 
So yeah, so I was like, I'm on, the, on this call and I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna find her. And did like, you? I did, yeah. And where? Uh, so the, the story, oh man, I mean, this is like, this is such a story. Um, it was super emotional. So I got, I got like, first it was funny. It was like an exercise. It was like, like literally I'm like posting and I'm getting in touch with private detectives and asking them for like, Hey, can you like give me like, what are the strategies? And I did it and I did, and I put it all into, and that's how I, so eventually I got phone records from, I cross-referenced things with her name. And then I saw one other name that seemed to pop up alongside her name places. And I got, so I had the hunch that maybe she had been to rehab because right. the, um, the rumors at the time were that she was a crazy cokehead and, uh, you know, she became a prostitute and stuff. And I was like, that's bullshit. That's stupid, whatever. Um, but I was just like, okay, I know she was like kind of fucked up. So like maybe she was in rehab. So I was checking rehabs and stuff. And then addresses where her name would come up there was one other name and i just i i hypothesized that perhaps that's her mother or a relative whatever so i started looking for that name and that was the name that i ended up finding so i got phone records there were no phone records for her because she doesn't it turns out she doesn't have a phone um but i found her mother um by calling every single one of this name literally just cold calling eventually i took an afternoon and hi blah 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 and eventually someone picked up and it was her and it was very um no one had spoken to her in 15 years about her daughter and oh, wow. uh, I'm, I'm skipping through this i'm not telling like yeah. every little detail like I, I i'm happy to but like just for the sake of you know not making everyone listen um it was a crazy phone call. It, it took a second. Once she realized that, like, cause I'm like, hi, okay. Once I realized I'm talking to the right person, I'm like, okay, this is very weird. I just need to like say, like, I'm just kind of being weird. Like I have no reason. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I was good friends with your daughter. I thought she was awesome and I don't know where she is. So I felt, I just would try and track her down. That's it. Like if you, if you feel uncomfortable talking to me, I totally respect that. But like, it's no more than that. You can ask me any questions, but like, I just wanted to, like, I don't have any motive here. If that sounds weird, I'm so sorry. Like, and, and I'm talking about it that way. And um, once she kind of like, bought, like believed me, um, yeah, she started telling me what really happened and, and she started crying and she started saying like, so you knew my daughter, like the way I described her daughter, she's like, so you knew my daughter, you know, before. And long story short is everything um, that I heard was, was real. And she had fallen off. She had, become a terrible, you know, really, really bad drug addict. She is alive, but she's in and out of contact with everyone. She's homeless and she has a daughter that's not with her anymore. And she's, you know, she's in and out of halfway houses and stuff. A lot of those numbers that I found were halfway houses and I spoke to them and they couldn't give me the information. They couldn't even identify that they were a halfway house. So I was getting, right. you no. Know, so I was having these weird conversations and that was why, and, you know, um, but yeah, but I did all this work. It took, it took a couple of weeks um, and I tracked her down and uh, I ended up having this very emotional conversation with the mother because I didn't know that the daughter was adopted because her son had been killed uh, oh. my age and he was supposed to go to school with me apparently. And oh. he had been killed and the head of my school Told, promised the mother that if she adopted another child, that he would let that child into my school. And the child's name was her, her son's name was was Sean was my name. So she like flipped oh, out wow. and she together. She was like, "You're the only person that like I've spoken to in 15 years who describes my daughter the way that 
you just did because no one who's known her since she was, you know, 13 describes her that way because she's just not. Yeah. 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 It was a, and I ended up flying. Oh yeah. We were talking about like going to Boca. So I ended up flying to Miami to have dinner with her because of this connection and um have dinner with the mother yes ah like just out of like you know just this is fucking powerful and like what why else am yeah. i alive you know these these really meaningful moments so yeah. yeah i just i went to miami to meet her and her her uh you know new not the dad but the new husband and they were amazing and like i just i stay in touch with them but um I never met the daughter. Uh, I'm not saying her name, obviously. Like I never met her. Uh, she's yeah. in and out of out of you know rehab and stuff. Um, and yeah, I think it was she's like I was supposed to see the mother, and that was it. I wasn't supposed to see the daughter. Yeah, that's like something I would have written. Where like the mystery, the solution to the mystery is not finding the daughter. It's giving the mother a young person she lost one kid now she's in some sense losing the other kid yeah. you know and i'm sure it was meaningful to her to connect it was with a you. crazy experience yeah that was that was that was one that i solved the other one i didn't solve and it's still an yeah, open case yeah but i have one <laughs> i have one other open mystery but everyone you, has their little detective story have you gone on like detective adventures like that yourself not to that extreme no no <laughs> i get more curious about things than about people like i'll get curious about the buildings that i lived in and like why this was that way and things like that little things that you will never find the answer to um no i don't think i've ever gone on some big like caper on a person like that no i'll give you just the just the log line of the other one yeah i won't go into it but we found my friend uh, another rehab situation. Uh, my friend yeah. who I was helping get sober. A lot of these missing people are in rehab. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> she was. So I, I got her sober. Rehab. Right. So she was. Uh, she was living in my guest room, and she was there mm -hmm. for a long time, longer than I thought. You know, longer than I expected, because that's how it goes. Um, and about six months, there was a pile. There were piles everywhere because she was messy. And one day, I'm cleaning up, and a pile that would have been about six months old, I pick up and I find a letter addressed to her that is very, very intimate and describes an event in her life. It doesn't say it directly, but it, 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 really, it, it is that event. And only me and her therapist knew about it. And this letter is about Ooh. that event. And it's from a name, a first name, it, and it says her name on it. Um, so it's definitely to her. And uh, she's never seen it before in her life. And it's a very intimate letter from a name of a person that we cannot place who this person is. We've done tons of research. We've called all of her rehab facilities, all of her therapists. So in case she forgot something, we're like, you don't need to identify anything, but is there anyone by the, this first name that she could have, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> and this letter's weird as fuck. And um, oh. we've never, we've never figured it out. That one's kind of scary. It's super scary. My new yeah. script is about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a it's a really, it's a really weird, it's kind of like, so, okay. So now let's get into come closer because this letter <laughs> makes me feel like this guy is the kind of guy that makes your character in come closer seek out Nama. 
Yeah. Because I, I think she seeks out Nama. I think she needs Nama. She's to, open to it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if she seeks it out, but she's open. She's way more open than she should be. Yeah. I, I loved it. And I got obviously super into it. And <laughs> so, you know, Come Closer is a, it's a book about demon possession. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would argue that it's, it's about, you know, interpersonal dynamics, gender dynamics, and just the self. And it's, it's, a, it's a woman who's spiraling and being taken over by a demon. And you could just make it very practical also. You could take it completely literally and, and remove the demon. How do you, I mean, don't, don't give away all the goods, but, uh, you know, how do you see it? Did you come to it through the mysticism or did you come to it through the stress of, of life? I came to it more through like just being really scared of things <laughs> for being like a huge scaredy cat myself being scared of horror movies before I wrote that I could never sit through a horror movie Wow! and if I even like saw a commercial for a horror movie on tv I would get so scared I mean this is like as a grown adult in my 20s <laughs> but back to the 70s everything goes back to the 70s right when I was like a little kid once like less than 10 years old, seven or eight years old. I'm, it's a Saturday and they used to have like movies on Saturday afternoons. You know, you didn't have cable, you just had regular TV. And um, I was switching channels and I came across a scene from The Exorcist, mm. which was Reagan lying in her bed saying it's a nice day for an exorcism, isn't it? With her face all fucked up. I don't even know what that's supposed to be. It's such a horror movie trope now, with the sort of broken face. And I don't know what that's even supposed to like right, dirt like, I don't know like what's yeah. on her face I don't know I don't know what that is and now it's a, it's like a trope that was repeated and repeated and no one knows what it means that they ever did <laughs> like how regardless. someone's face does in fact get that way yeah. yeah yeah like what is that exactly like it anyway that's another story at the time it was very impactful because it was a fresh image now it's the opposite right. of a fresh image it's a cliche but it was this very frightening fresh imagery and I was switching channels and I came across that I was seven something six seven eight years old and I was so scared I turned off the TV and ran out of the room, ran to find my parents. And I was old enough to be like very embarrassed about being that scared. So it was like a lot of shame. There was like fear and shame. And then I found my mother and I was way too old to be like, I saw something on TV that scared me. I was like, what's for lunch or something, whatever. Something to not betray what I was feeling. And now that we're talking about it in retrospect, the shame was probably as impactful as the fear, right? But I was just so scared of that. And I was always so scared of that movie and always so scared of that concept, this idea that you could be two things at once. And I think, I think all writers have something that they come back to again and again and again, right? Some writers, it's really obvious. Like Philip Roth is the example of the most obvious, you know, Jewish guy from Newark, again and again and again and again with a lot of sex issues and a lot of thoughts about sex. And that's what he keeps going. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Um, and my things that I keep going back to again and again are like things about identity and who you really are and not knowing who you really are. And the other thing that I always come back to again and again is the world is not really what you think the world is. Those are the two things that I keep coming back to over and over again. And it's something, and you know, and it's difficult to articulate how do all those things tie together. If you could articulate it in a simple way, in a sentence, you wouldn't write a book about it. You would just say it, right? Yeah. That's like where the boring stuff goes. You just well, say that, that's what art is. You know, if you can just say yeah. something, put it in an article, and now we understand. But we do art to both 
make it and understand in the action of actually writing it is the we understand more and we can only transfer this kind of understanding in this format and it must exist exactly as it is yes thank you i think that's really really accurate you know and i think that this this art is a conversation not from my brain to your brain it's from my soul to your soul and my heart to your heart if you met the my brain to your brain conversation is the op-ed piece in the new york times you know and this is another language we speak this language of dreams and symbolisms and imagery and fantasies and nightmares um I talk so. about this all the time with like Sundance films, you know, they're article films. They're films that, that should just oh, be yeah. articles. You know, they don't need to be movies. They're just like, yeah. you know, they're just a thing. They're just, they're, they're, we're just filming something that we could just, just talk out. It's it could that, be a podcast. It doesn't you know? work. No. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to, I think this was before we started taping. We were talking about how Hollywood is just completely failed and this liberal mm. ideals that you know everyone here supposedly is so left-wing it supposedly has these liberal ideals and we've completely failed both in within our own industry having those standards and also within transmitting those goals yeah. those liberal ideals which are good ideals in my opinion to the larger world even though my politics are more radical than liberal in the world of the I, the principles i'm all on board with the principles of both it's about teams. how you transfer ideas and that's yeah. in the failing it's not it's not you know to nitpick on like i believe this you believe that whatever it's it's about the transference yeah, yeah, and yeah. the transference is where we fail because when we all post black images on our you know on our social media yeah. we Probably don't not. understand that that's you know what is the large what is the point what is the action here what do we want what world do we want to live in what and world do we want to live in yeah all of our actions must move toward that universe. We are the powerful ones to build our own, each as individuals, I build my own universe. I am the most important and the most impactful and powerful to build that universe. Every single action must contribute to that or it's something else, it's the enemy, you know? And I don't think we think about it that way. So I think we think that as long as we, you know, expression is higher, expression is as high as it gets to a lot of people, understanding is not really considered and that's a problem. No, the problem is always some other guy somewhere else doing the thing. It's never mm. me doing the thing, right? It's always that guy would stop what he's doing. Things would be better. And that's, you know, one thing that does get, anyway, that's a whole other topic. But um, no, it's, but yeah, it's like thinking about yourself and you have to start with service to others, in my opinion. That's how you kind of get somewhere. And it needs to, there needs to be. I think, you know, art, it's all ideas. It's all philosophy. All of it is just, is worldview. How should one live? You know, Gilles Deleuze, I talk about, like, how should one live? And that's all we're trying to answer. And the reason why art exists, I think, is because art has a power to implant ideas, to transfer ideas in ways that words do not alone. So stories and form shifts. And if we Mm -hmm. use that effectively it builds the world. It affects people. Your book, the reason why we're in touch is because that happened to me in the most literal sense possible. Like I read your book and yeah, we got to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell this story because this is, problem. We need this to, is there's a bad thing going on here that we need to talk about. I need to give you some advice here. It might be. Yeah. I might need it. So I was in Mexico. I'm still in Mexico, but I'm in a different part. This was in, this would have been in February, I guess. Um, I was in Oaxaca, yeah, and I had been sick in New York, so I went down there to feel better, and I was by myself, and I read your book, 
And I don't know, it was, no, I've read your book in New York. Yeah. I read your book probably a month before this happened. And then I, I don't drink much, especially lately. I went to this, I was in the ocean. I was in the sun a lot, not crazy sunburn, but like maybe enough. I had eaten that day. It wasn't like a, and I go to this, I, I go and I get some food, but I have a drink first. And I'm talking, I had like one sip of like a mezcal cocktail and I'm at a restaurant by myself. There's no one there. I'm the first customer. It's like five o'clock and it hasn't really opened yet. And all of a sudden I wake up and I had just been sitting there and I just, it felt like I had just arrived. You know, I'm like back. Like I was, I wasn't, I look around, like I didn't fall asleep. I didn't move, but it felt like I just woke up and I listen and, and the song that's playing only seconds have gone by. So I, I remembered the part of the song. Like it was like a hook. It was like that quick, but I felt as if I had just woken up. And then my initial instinct is, Oh, did I just like nod off? That's really weird. Uh, and then it happened again. And I start thinking that I was drugged and I look around, I'm seeing if anyone's looking at me, you know, if there's no one else in the restaurant and it's like very, these are like, I know these, you know, these waitresses and stuff. Like, it's yeah, just like, yeah. yo, like no one's like, I'm also like, I'm, why am I the target? Like, this is not, yeah. you know, I'm not like in some like weird part of Mexico. I'm, I'm on the beach in Oaxaca. This is not like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm dressed very modestly. Like I'm not the target. So, um, yeah, I'm like, I see no, and I don't even see how they would have drugged me. It makes no sense. There's like no opportunity. Yeah. And what drug does that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm like, this doesn't, you know, I've been drugged before and this is, I don't feel sick. I don't feel woozy. Like yeah. I feel completely, I'm so, I'm like fucking Jason Bourne. I'm like on it. I'm present. And then I disappear and then I come back. But like when I'm there, I'm like fully present. So, and I know what it's like to be drunk. I know what it's like to get roofied. Like, this is not it. Uh, I don't, I'm not dizzy. I'm not, my stomach doesn't hurt. Anyway, uh, so I start messaging a friend of mine and I'm like talking it all out, you know, in, I'm trying to like analyze it. I FaceTime her and I go, I go back to my hotel that's like two blocks away. This was really, really difficult because getting up and walking I have to, so basically what happens is I start resetting constantly every few seconds and I can either, I can commit to physical action or thought. I can't do both in one reset. So I need to string them together and I need to be conscious of, of um, leading myself toward a physical goal or an idea. And what started to happen was I started to speak in voices new voices that weren't mine in like with, with accents kind of not on purpose, but I think because I wasn't able to formulate words properly. So I wanted to express the idea, but I didn't have enough time to say the word properly. And then my voice would just go into some cadence that was unfamiliar to me, but then I would just keep carrying the cadence for like minutes. And then I would notice eventually oh, I'm speaking in some weird cadence. I should change that cadence. And then that becomes my action that I dedicate the uptime to. So uh, the challenge was like walking home along the side of a road 
because I forget that I'm on the side of a road and I might go to the right where the car is, you know, and then I have to walk across a balcony to get to my room and I might forget that there's a drop there, you know, so I was conscious of this the whole thing. It was very weird. I made it um, and, I, and I caught myself falling a couple times because I would just forget I'm standing also, you know, and fall and that happened. Um, and I was worried about sharp objects and stuff like that. So I get back to the room and it got way worse. I just was, I started screaming and I started just like uh, emoting basically. I got to the, cause I started laughing and then I would start, I would, I would be horrified and I'd go on these strings. And my friend was, was on FaceTime the entire time watching this whole thing. And at one point I start, I don't know when it started. I don't remember because I, I, I kept going, but I got possessed by, a demon by Nama. And what I convinced myself was happening, what I think happened was I, I remembered your book and then I got on the string of it and I acted out the book basically. And I didn't know I was acting out the book because I forgot because it, because you know, three up times ago is no longer in my memory. So I just keep automatically doing it. And I, but I was convinced for a long time that I was actually, you know, occupied and I was, I was possessed. And that was what was happening to me and I needed to fight it. And then I started acting out the voices. I started, I had this very calm voice that was me and I was talking to myself. I was sort of coaching myself of how to uh, resist. And then I had all these different personalities. It was crazy. And then I would speak as the demon and like, it was insane. I was acting out the whole book and, and I was literally, I was saying Nama. Um, and I was telling my friend who was on the phone with me, Magda, and I was telling her, what was happening. And then eventually I realized the book. And then I was trying to, I was trying to figure out if I was really getting possessed by a demon or if I was just acting out the book and then I'd reset and I'd forget and I would just go back into demon mode. And it, it went on for a long time. Um, and eventually she helped me get to sleep. Going to sleep was crazy. Cause I, I eventually like lying down became such a, it's so hard to do because just getting from like standing to lying down and then getting to sleep took hours because I would just think of something and I'd start screaming or something like that or just laughing okay. or whatever. But I invoked the entire book. It was insane. And eventually I woke up and it just started <laughs> it like, it started to be minutes uh, in gaps in up to, in, you know, in resets versus seconds. And eventually I just, I just snapped out of it and I felt fine the next morning. And um, yeah, like it was insane. I think I but, put extra royalties for that. I think like when you act out the book, that's like theatrical production. You know, only a lot. <laughs> right. That was basically like you watching the book. You know. Um, it was you're insane. You're living it out. Sorry, I was I'm living it out. My lawyers involved now. So what's happened since then, though? Nothing close. Nothing. Uh -huh. It hasn't repeated itself. Uh -huh. We don't know. No new case. No new. Uh, New interests, new desires, all of a sudden you want the- Oh, 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 oh as far as possession. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I definitely, yeah. I definitely took this as an experience. I took this as meaningful. Um, I've, I've been, I've been good. No, I haven't been, uh, no, I haven't, I haven't, unless I don't know about it, but I haven't like yeah, gone and murdered. Mean, yeah. Like as far as I know, I haven't murdered any newspaper salesmen or anything like that. <laughs> as far like, as I know, I <laughs> no, I don't know, but mm -hmm. it was a good thing to me because it made me feel this, um, access to like this automatic place, which was really empowering to me and really dispelling of 
anything else. It was like, this is what- See, that's bad. This shouldn't be a good place. This is not a good place. Don't think of it like that. This is why we had to talk. This is why I had to come and do this podcast with you. This is not a good place and that's not where you want to go. Don't do that. No, you want to go away from that place. You want to go to a place of clarity in union with the world. You do not want to go to the place of being possessed by different entities and confused. And not no, I don't want to be possessed. No, I like the idea of automatic though. The automatic, as long no, as I'm not, in, as long as I'm not being possessed. Automatic, something else. Right. Yeah. No, no automatic. Automatic is not good. That's death. That's, you don't want to do that. Automatic is something else. You're something's puppet, whether it's your subconscious or something else or some bad part of you or bad part of the world puppet on a string. So that's what I'm trying to demonstrate with my very bad hand gestures here. Puppet no, on a string. You don't want to do that. You want to be vital. You want to have an impulse that you follow that is a unique, fresh impulse that you follow. I have, a, I have so many theories about so many things. Yeah. But one of my theories is when you do something sort of automatically, when you fall into a groove, it's like a bad demonic place to be. Like not in that specific demon, but it's just you never want to be on autopilot. You always want to have some consciousness about you. It's like spiritual hygiene. You never want to be like, just kind of going through the motions, whether that's something like really bad, like you're murdering someone again, oops, or <laughs> whether it's just like parroting a political view that all your friends have without really thinking about it. Probably more common for many of us. Yes. But, um, you know, whatever it is, you want to have consciousness and, and freshness and a, a genuine sense of connection to yourself and the world around you. That's how you're going to stay in like a good place spiritually. So whatever happened to you, like I've had like sun, I used to get sun poisoning a lot. That's what it sounds like. Like Th that's what that's the best yeah. hypothesis for sure. Because yeah, likelihood of alcohol is low. Because it wasn't like I hadn't had a drink in months. It was like I didn't. I yeah. don't drink a lot, but it's not like that was the first alcohol that touched my lips. You know. But I remember once when I was young, and I was a very heavy drinker, so I could really hold my alcohol. I was like a real lush when I was young, mm -hmm. and I very I hardly drink at all now. But um, and once I was in Florida, I love Florida. I'll tell you, it all comes mm. back to Florida. I was in Florida. I had a friend that lived there. This is Miami in the 80s. It's like New York in the 80s. We could have a whole other conversation about oh, Miami in the 80s, which was amazing. Thing, yeah. and cool and South Beach in the 80s was incredible. It was yeah. just the kind of place we were talking about. Most of those hotels were still empty. Um, there was just like European tourists, you know, a lot of uh, immigrants from all over South America, Cuba, old Jewish people. Yeah, Jews. Yeah, yeah, old Jews. Wonderful old Jews. So I was there and I just had like one drink and I had actually a similar experience, but oh, with wow. no like exciting spiritual stuff. I just went to a club and I just remember going in and out of consciousness when I only had like a couple of drinks and I was a very happy drinker. It's scary. Because I'd been out on the beach in the sun all day. I was yeah. scared that someone, that, that they were going to eventually, so I left my phone on because yeah. like recording, like, like live stream to my friend in case the whole plan was to have me go back to my hotel room let me pass out and then break in and do whatever. But that was, that was one yeah, thing I was worried about. Yeah, that's what about. happened to Andrew Dworkin. Yeah. Um, yeah, you need like some spiritual hygiene, you know? You need to like keep your, the walls up when they need to be up and down when they need to be down. And you need, you know the word limpia, like a cleansing, no. a spiritual cleansing, I'm sure. Oh, limpia in Spanish. Yeah, limpia. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, with my, my utter lack of an accent, you could not understand. <laughs> I was, I but, didn't realize you meant Spanish. Of course I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it didn't sound like Spanish. Um, but you know, in whatever town that you're in, go find someone. Go get a good 
Olympia, go get a good cleansing, you know, or do a little research and do one yourself. Get some Florida water. Do you like what they call a white bath in Santeria? That's like a cleansing thing that's open to all non-practitioners. Anyone can do it. What's a white bath? Have a white bath. What's a white bath? The white bath is like a bath full of beautiful white things to purify. So Santeria is not Mexican. I just brought it up because it came into my mind. Sure. As you probably know, being a New Yorker, it's Cuban and um, Puerto Rican syncretic religion of the indigenous religions of those areas with the African former slaves who were taken there and European created this beautiful, these series of beautiful religions, one of which is Santeria, another one of which is voodoo. Um, another one of which is all the various Mexican syncretic traditions of combined Mexican witchcraft and Catholicism and all of these great cultures coming together. And this is where we started our conversation, talking yeah. about how when people come together, horrible, horrible things can happen and also beautiful, beautiful things can happen. So a white bath, a bath, just a bath in a bathtub. You can put in Florida water. You can put in a can of coconut milk, beautiful, pure coconut milk, white flowers, maybe some coconut butter shavings, um, cocoa butter, not coconut butter. What else can Sounds you put really in nice. this? Yeah. I've got this big white, white bathtub here, like really nice, like oh, rounded yeah. edges, Mexican architecture. It's really cool. Oh yeah. You have those big wooden doors in every doorway, those big, beautiful wooden Mexican doors. Like, yeah. yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. I love the architecture yeah. here. It's nice. I love the architecture. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I've leaned into it. Sorry, say that again. Oh, yeah. I was just saying the architecture is all these different things coming together, you know, which was Definitely. had such horrible results, obviously, in a lot of history and also created beautiful things. But yeah, do cleansing baths. Do try to do a different cleansing bath every night. A white bath is a really good place to start and a really good place to finish. You can do a bath with apple cider vinegar. You can do a bath with baking soda, but it's really bad for your hair. I just did like a series of spiritual <laughs> baths. Oh, wow. um, just for the heck of it, just because the times are tough, things are weird, yeah. right? Um, so baking soda is supposed to be really good for cleansing, but it will totally fuck up your hair. I see that you have long hair, so <laughs> it may not be worth it. I really fucked up my hair. This is like a week your later. Hair looks my beautiful. Hair. Thank you, but there's still some frizz issues. We saw some frizz issues going on from the. I have the ocean right here, so, so I can always just go in the ocean. Ahead. It's fine. Yeah. Ocean water is a yeah, yeah. That's really really good. The ocean is really good. Baking soda bath, vinegar bath, white bath, what else? Just a little Florida water in the bathtub is really good. I'm sure you can find a shop in town that sells different like healing waters and oils. There's some cool stuff here. I, yes. I love how into like mysticism you are because I've seen it, you know, with Nama obviously, but also, uh, which I haven't, again, I haven't finished, so I don't know where you go with it, but the case of the Kali Yuga is, is the book that I'm yeah. reading of yours right now. So you imbue these ideas of mysticism into... A lot of your work, it seems. It's cool. I, mean, I don't know if mysticism yeah, is the right word. Mysticism word is just, I'm picking a random fucking word. There's but like, no better yeah. word. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Like, mysticism I hate the word spirituality. Great, great like, word. yeah. 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 Mysticism is a really, really special word. It's a really beautiful word because it connects to all of these other things that, to okay. me, to me, it's a very special word, right? Because it connects to mystery. Same root, right? right? So you have mysteries in crime, then you have the mysteries in the Christian religion, the mysteries of Jesus and the mysteries of Mary. So you have this idea of mysticism, which I'm sure you know this, but just for the sake of conversation, you know, to a lot of people that word just means the stuff we're talking about, but it also means something very specific, which is a, a direct connection to the divine. 
So every religion has the mystical branch of its religion. And to me, you know, everyone should be interested in what they're interested in. What I'm interested in is the mystical branch of every religion. So yoga is a myst one of many mystical branches of mm -hmm. Hinduism because it's not about going to church and praying or temple. <laughs> I don't think they say church, but it's about your your unique personal connection with the divine. The divine in me meets the divine in the universe, right? And in yoga, you call that the self with the big S instead of as opposed to the small S. So yoga means yoke. So you're yoking. Um, as in bringing together your, the part of you that is mystical, the self with the big S and the part with the small S, the small self. In Christianity, mysticism, there's all these beautiful mystical traditions that we see in the saints. People like um, Thomas Merton, who was this great mystic who spent so much time alone, so much time alone in prayer, just connecting directly to God as he understood it, right? So that's this thing that is it's an anarchist form of religion because there's, it's just about your direct connection with the divine. There's no church that matters. Nothing else matters. None of the hierarchies matter. None of the rules matter. None of the scriptures matter. What matters in mysticism is this like pure, beautiful anarchist vision of your immediate connection with mm. the divine. So that is a big interest of mine. And I'm also really interested in like folklore, which is more of the stuff we're talking about. This whole like folklore of mysticism, I guess you could say. All of these like little tricks that everyone around the world has. Like, what do you do when you're possessed? Almost everyone is going to say, take a bath. <laughs> That's also really interesting to me. Wow. Everyone's going to have a different kind of bath. And you know, you're Jewish. If you were a Jewish woman, you'd go take a mikvah is what you do. I don't know if yeah. there's any tradition. Do men ever go to the mikvah? Is there any circumstance I, in which men would take a bath? I'm a special sure. bath? I'm not sure. I don't think so, right? I don't know. So women, you were cleansing your, like your menstrual cycle can be a form of spiritual cleansing because it can be a form of getting what's out of you, what needs to be out. And then you can complete your cycle of spiritual cleansing by going to the mikvah. So I know that like a lot of those traditions have been used to oppress women over the years, right? And have been really bad. The pure original spark of it, a lot of people theorize, was just a spiritual cleansing. Mm. Um, so all of this stuff has like practical applications, you know? And growing up in New York, that was such a, such a gift. That's one thing I feel like I talked about a lot was wrong and awful about growing up in New York in the 70s, 80s, 90s. One really good thing was all of these religions from all over the world. There were botanicas on every block. There was, Flatbush was still very Haitian. I don't know if it is now just because I haven't been there in years and years. There was this huge voodoo market this huge voodoo store on Flatbush Avenue that was sort of famous because they had this big life-size black Jesus in the um, window, like a statue. And it was also a practicing temple and you could go in and talk to people. And if you were nice and you were respectful, people would talk to you and say, hey, if you're having this trouble, buy this. I, you want this candle, do you have questions, you know? And if you went in like an asshole, people wouldn't talk to you. They'd sure. say, get the fuck out, you know? <laughs> um, and then you could go to Chinatown and see. It's Buddhism. funny how people have that that stigma around New York, which is totally not true. It's just if you're totally an asshole not. or if you come in and you you know you act like a tourist, like yeah, they'll just say, "Yo, I'm doing something." Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of what ruined New York. Because so many people had seen New York on TV, so when they moved there, they thought, "Oh, you're an asshole when you're here, right?" No, 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 no. you're nice. No you just asshole, don't smile like... when you're nice. <laughs> yeah, we you don't walk down the, the street smiling, but that's weird. Like, why do you walk down the street just with yeah, a big yeah. smile on your face? That? Yeah. Are you a psychopath? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How many people did you murder today? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we're not walking down the street like, fuck you. Like, I would be right. so, yeah. It's crazy. But, the, but in New York, there were all of these, like, you know, and even in 
you know, where I grew up was very Italian and Irish. My parents were gentrifiers. They had lived in the West Village. Mm. And there were these sort of bohemian people when they bought this house in Brooklyn, and some of our neighbors were gentrifiers, um, but most of them were um, Irish and Italian people who, would, who were working class people. They were last exit to Brooklyn people who worked on the Gowanus Canals. But their form of Catholicism had a lot of magic in it on the one end and a lot of, I don't know if they had mystical experiences. I wasn't close to them, but you know, Catholicism has this big mystical tradition. But there's also a lot of folk magic and a lot of just weird churches growing up. There was a lot of Mary Star of the Sea when you see Mary rising out of the ocean on a shell. I still don't really know what that's all about, you know? And then there's the, speaking of Williamsburg, I think they still do the big parades where they carry the statues around and stuff. Uh, so New York was really the sort of spiritual wonderland back then before it was so gentrified. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And like an education. So on that, you know, bridging a little bit, in, including New York and bridging a little bit, like while I'm, I care about all these topics, these thematic topics a lot more, but I think you're a full, you know, you're a full-time writer and you're from New York. You've worked at, as far as I read, you worked at, at the Strand, you worked at Shakespeare and Company, you worked at Housing Works. Oh, yeah. Where do you see the next step, both for, you know, physical books, for writers writing books that get released, be it in physical stores, on Kindles, whatever. Um, and, you know, you have a medium now. Like, wh where do yeah. you, and you're writing for television. And what, what do you see the life of a writer moving toward? next uh you know i have been thinking about that a lot lately because i don't know what i want to do next i have a couple things that i'm working on like i'm doing an audiobook original that's going to come out later this year cool that's something i never would have crossed my mind 10 years ago you yeah. know that's a new thing um it is hard working with publishers i will say has been one of the big challenges of my life i don't it's just always been a really tricky thing and it's always been really hard and something really has to change there for writers and publishers. It's just not good. Um, and I like, you know, I work in Hollywood. I'm in LA now. I work in Hollywood all day, every day, and it's fine. I'm not someone who's easily flummoxed by things and I am flummoxed by how to work with publishers at this point in my career. I wow. really am how to have a sane relationship there. And I, every writer I know is pretty much in the same boat. So you move um, around with publishers. You don't have the same one. Yeah, I have because they keep shit keeps going wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not been the goal. The goal is to have one publisher you stay with, you know. That's the goal, and I haven't achieved that at all. Uh, and my sales are fine; like they're not great, but they're fine. They're certainly not enough that anyone's going to fight over me. But people like my work, so they tend to fight over me for that reason, which is good. Um, I like your work. I mean, yeah, I'm lucky. But bookstores are doing well. Like it's funny because all the bookstores died, you know, in the '90s. In early 2000s, so many bookstores closed, and they closed because of Amazon, and they closed because of rents, but they also closed because they didn't provide good customer service. You know, you also saw this in music stores and record stores and guitar stores. You're old enough to remember going in a record store and just being, like, oh, so course. judged for your choices and just oh, being yeah. treated so rudely. And there was a beauty in that, and there was something fun in it, especially if you were the one on the side of the counter doing the judging, but also, like, that's not good for business. Like yeah. we don't want to live in capitalism maybe, but we do live in capitalism. Maybe we would prefer things to be different, but they're not different. So if you want to keep your business open, you can't make fun of the books your customers are buying. Right. You can't refuse to stock John Grisham or whatever. 
and bookstores now really get it. And you know, like in Brooklyn, there's Word, there's Greenlight. They work with authors, they work with publishers, they're good to their customers. They keep the stores clean, you know, they vacuum, they sweep. <laughs> they don't let cats pee on the books. <laughs> These things that, you know, we all miss the beauty and charm of the old days, but, um, and some, then there's also this whole world of nonprofit bookstores that's amazing and wonderful, speaking of having a different motivation. And, you know, people need to support the info shops, the black run bookstores, which are some of which are nonprofits and some of which are just, of course, capitalist enterprises too, but with a more unique and more useful spin. You know, the anarchist info shops all over the country are such an incredible resource and such a beautiful thing. I don't know if there's any left in New York City, but every other city has them sure. still. We used to have blackout books in New York down on Avenue B, and I learned just so much just from going there and picking up little pamphlets and stuff, and that's kind of where I got my radical education um, was that kind of bookstore, especially blackout books. I don't know if they still exist in any form. But bookstores are doing good. Writers are doing good. You know, in my life, the thing that's not quite working is the publishers, but I guess that's certainly working for some people. But I notice a lot of writers are going to look for different ways to get their work out, you know? Um, and and I need to find some too. I'm not sure. I've just been thinking about it all the past few weeks and I, and I haven't come up with any solutions, but it's very much on my mind. Do I want to start my own small press? You know, do I want to, like I know someone who's just publishing a book right now, kind of chapter by chapter on the internet, which is great, but then how do you get people to find it? And how do you get people to read it? It doesn't have to be about making money, but weirdly enough, if there is a transfer of money, it's sort of easier to find your audience. Um, but I actually have a phone call I was supposed to have last week and, and I didn't get to it yet, with someone who's gonna help me put a couple of my short stories up on Amazon. Okay. which I will do for free or for a dollar, but just to get them out there in a nice format and a nice, but then right. I'm cutting out my independent bookstores, which have been so good to me and where so many of my friends work, but they don't really want to sell short stories. That's not their business. I love reading um, short stories because short stories yeah, are, because I think about film and, you know, short stories are the best way yeah. to think, you know, the best adaptation, best uh, food for film adaptation. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah, novels yeah. are like typically not meant like for, yeah, yeah, a novel is not meant to be made into a film. You could take parts of an, you could take ideas in a novel or events in a novel and turn it into a yeah. film. But typically when someone writes a short story or a micro memoir or something like that, it is just, it is the text for a screenplay. It is, it is, it's got all the things, but a novel is usually, there's a literary aspect to it. Like, you know, come closer, like would, you would have to completely rethink the, literary aspect and make it a visual aspect someone could just make a movie about the plot but like that doesn't matter like you know that's not yeah. good um like i adapted one one book this this like creepypasta book that was like a very simple book it wasn't like uh highbrow you know it was it was yeah. like um Those but there was an idea yeah. in it that just like skyrocketed in my head and my script is like totally totally different like i haven't even sent it to the writer because like i don't think uh like it's optioned by someone else and like i'm not even it's basically like i just took one aspect of the book and mm -hmm. went into a whole nother because because the literary aspect of it is ju it's just different you know it's like the shining and like it's a different different thing 
Yeah, like it short has stories. to be no translation when you're doing an adaptation. Like yeah, it has like, to be like how good translators, when they're translating from one language to the other, they're not just translating the words because right. that wouldn't really get you anywhere. Like the sentence structure is different. The paragraph structure is different. Right. So a good translator will get in touch with you, the writer, and be like, what did you mean by this? What was this? Because there's, you know, they're translating a full picture. So that's what you have to do when you're adapting. I'm really excited. I'll is going to do with um uh fuck what's the it's in it's shit what is the book called um it's you know 200 page literary thriller uh i'm thinking about ending things i'm thinking of ending things in will someone just recommended that to me i did like a book club appearance yesterday oh, you should read it. Book. i hadn't thought of it before yeah it's one really night good. You know, one one yeah. night. It's it's the it's the size of of come closer. You know, yeah, two hundred pages. Like, um, it's a sitting, two sittings. You know, uh, but it's completely. So Charlie Kaufman is is adapting it, writing and directing it, and it's it's it would have been out like now, but the world decided to do different things. Um, yeah, but it's uh it is a literary perspective, and there's language, and there's you know, it's like you get. 30 pages further until you realize who's talking kind of thing like that. And he didn't announce the perspective shift. It's things like that. Yeah. It's, it's very good. Um, you, I think it could go one way or the other with how one feels about the resolution. Um, but like someone could see it, it could read it and love it. Someone could read it and be like, Oh, he copped out. I, I, I think it's, it's up to, you know, reader's choice, but um like you might not be satisfied in the end, but yeah, super satisfied. I I don't know. Um, but uh, I don't know how that you know the movie. What I expect is like a totally different idea, and it's like you don't really care much about the book, and the movie is a different creative idea, um, which I'm excited about. I'm excited. To, I hope it's like The Shining, where he just took a little bit of the yeah housing and then went off on his own. I think those are the best adaptations, yeah. you know? And I think, like I said, it's gotta be, you take some element from the book or elements that you liked and then go and take those elements and make them in a way that works for screen. So we've been working on that. So Come Closer was first adapted, first optioned when it first came out. I got um, a big option from the Weinstein Company. And I was saying earlier, I started making money from writing so I could leave New York. So that's how I started making money. Yeah. So the book, no one wanted to publish that book. This is another story that I like to tell because yeah, it's good. a failure story. And I'm like very committed to telling my failure stories in public. All the other writers, I'm telling you, the writers used to just like always have this negative thing. And it was too negative. Like we were dragged to be around. Like I remember. <laughs> but now everyone's on Twitter like, oh, humble brag. Oh, I'm so fat from craft services. Oh, God. Oh, why can't they have carrots here, you know? And I am very not into that. I'm very not into shit that makes people feel bad and that is not yeah. honest, you know? Yeah. So I'm really into talking about failing. That's like my big hobby is talking about my failures in public, I think, for the next couple of years. So no one wanted to publish this book. No one wanted to buy it. I heard, I did not have an agent for my first book. I hired an agent to rep this book and then she didn't want to fucking rep it. She's like, no one's going to publish it. So we stayed with Soho Press, who was a great publisher, but they were just not enthusiastic about it. I was very fortunate to be with them it's not that that's a failure but they weren't into the book publishers yeah. used to kind of publish you to do you a favor back then that doesn't happen now now they're all mm -hmm. corporate but back then they would kind of be like yeah we like you we'll publish the book 
I got a really small advance, like less than $10,000 for a book that spent three years on. So that's less than a part-time job. That's like a, right. and it was a big piece Not of money close, to me at the time. Yeah. I was like, like $8,000 or something. Like it was definitely more money than I had ever had in one time before, but it was still not a lot. So this is 2003 when I sold it for when it was published, I think. So then no one wanted to review it. This is like a chicken little story, right? No one wanted to grind the bread. No one wanted to make the bread. No one wanted to sell the book. No one wanted to publish the book. No one wanted to read the book. And then I started getting these big film options. And my first big one was from the Weinsteins, you know, and no one knew it was the rape money. We just thought it was this big bounty of a giant pile of money. Someone backed up to my house. Way more money than I had ever even imagined I would make before. And I lived on it for years. I lived and still live pretty frugally, but I lived very frugally back then. Um, so I lived off that. They renewed the option for a couple of years in a row, but they couldn't really get a script. They had a great screenwriter, one of the all-time greats, write a script, and they just didn't really get the book. They wrote Are you allowed to say script. who wrote it? It was Jose Amini, who cool. is a better wow. screenwriter. Wow. There's very few people. I have a high opinion of my own talents, but yeah. I unabashedly say he's a better screenwriter than I am. Oh, incredible. Cool. And he wrote okay. a great script, but it wasn't the book. It was this sort of thriller thing. Mm -hmm. um, it was so beautiful and all of his great talents on display. It was not that book, though. It was not really horror. And then uh, another great producer. So Miramax optioned it for an, a Miramax Dimension, Weinstein, all these various permutations. Right. Weinstein Brothers optioned it for a number of years. And I was not a screenwriter. I was not interested in screenwriting at all. I was just a novelist. And I was making all this money. So why the hell would I do anything else? Hmm. So then um, someone else optioned it, Stephen Schneider, who is a horror producer who has had ups and downs in his career. He would be the first to say, I'm not telling tales out of school. Who is what did he do that I would know? He um, like basically discovered paranormal activity. You know, that was oh, he's in Bloomhouse, like early days, yes. I guess. Okay. Him and Jason started together. Got it. And they discovered that movie together. I don't know, like, exactly who found it first or, like, sure. the intricate ins and outs or whatever. And I'm not interested either. But, like, they found that together and they sort of started this low-budget horror film together. And then Stephen developed a drug problem. So he optioned the book and I was going to write the script. And I didn't make as much money. But by then I had started working in Hollywood. So I was like, I didn't really need the cash right up front. I thought we can wait for the later payout. We started working on it then... Um, he dropped out. We stopped working together. I had a lot of other false starts with other producers. And I said, fuck this. I took the rights back and I wrote a script myself. And now I'm co-producing with a bunch of other people. Cool. My dear friend, um, David Slade is on as director. Amazing. He's a great director. Wow. He is amazing. Yeah. yeah. We're also doing a TV show together. Um, he's made very huge films. Yes. He's, he's an incredible talent and a really good guy. Um, and he has bark skins that is on now that has just got released on Hulu after like a lot of delays. It's an incredible, mm. beautiful show um, that you've got to see if you haven't seen it yet. It's got to be just one of the more beautiful, striking visual things ever. It's on my Hulu queue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll watch it. Now that you said that, I'll watch it. I'll move, I'll move it closer. I mean, move right now yeah, is like, yeah. it's, it's so crazy, like how much content, you know, how many things are on my queue every yeah, week. Yes, but this is one of the few things that's like good. That's like worth sure. it. Cool. Yeah. I'll watch it. Um, so the, and then writing the script has been this whole like multi-year process of just doing what I was talking about of saying like, what do we want to keep about the book? So 
like if you like the element of you know suspense from the book well you don't recreate that in a movie by writing the same scenes you have to find a new way to create that suspense or this yeah. feeling of her losing control none of those scenes really directly translate you have to come up with new scenes to convey that um that's been like this sort of monumentally fun and draggy <laughs> alternately project of the past like almost 20 years now 15 16 years since the book came out that'd be so cool i have a call at five today to talk about it it's just i feel like this develop it's like a 15-year development process that may or may not ever result in a movie um, such as such as the the art the the, the biz whatever it is that's you know what it but is. we keep that's moving we keep yeah. moving that's it I, I hope that happens that's really exciting I hope so too. It would be really great. If you need a reader, I'm happy to give notes, you know, if <laughs> any time. <laughs> Do not That's... need more notes, but thanks for that offer. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life is getting notes from people all day, every day. Just write the one that you want it to be. That's yes. it. You know, yeah. only, I mean, only you and notes. <laughs> yeah, only you and David would matter, <laughs> you know. Sarah, this is, this is such a pleasure. This is like, it's, it's really it's a weird thing for me because like I had this flip out and then I can actually like the way the world is and the internet and stuff. And I could just like tell you about this directly. Yeah, it's amazing. so cool. It's, it's surreal, you know? Um, well, do your baths. I'm going to, I'm going to research. I wrote down a bunch of notes of, okay, good. of all of that. We need so a little know, spiritual cleansing. I'm feeling I'm, it and I'm, I'm seeing to it. it. Yeah. A little spiritual cleansing. I'm, I'm down. Okay, I'll, good. I'll, I'll, I'll dig into Build it. Build up the fences a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank for you. filling me in on all of this. I love getting the <laughs> the context to it. I was thinking about it and I was like, should I wait a week and finish the 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 book I'm reading right now? But I was like, you know what? Actually, it'll be cooler to continue reading it after talking to you. You know, so so that's why I kept this time. Um, but thank you so much. Stay safe, please. Yeah. Don't go. You know, don't do anything crazy. And no, uh, keep the Joe's. demons at bay. Yeah, don't go to Trader Joe's. I will see you in uh, Boca when we go to have dinner with your grandmother. We'll oh my God, there. it'll be I'll great. Be our next, our next at, appointment. I will we'll, see you with your grandmother in Boca. That'll be beautiful. All right, awesome. thank you so much. Have a thank great afternoon. So Good luck really on your fun. call. You too. Thank you. <laughs>